Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the living God. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look again in verse 2. Our key phrase for today will be the first phrase, fixing our eyes on Jesus. We looked last Sunday at that next phrase, the author and perfecter of faith. Lord willing, we'll look a week from today at the following phrase, who for the joy set before Him, but we'll marry today fixing our eyes on Jesus, who endured the cross, despising the shame. That's our portion for today's Word. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing in it. Father, it is our cry, our prayer, our plea. That You would take us to Golgotha. And that You would let us see what it means that the Lord Jesus endured the cross despising its shame. And we pray, O God, that that same Savior who died on that cross now risen, reigning, and seated at Your right hand, would dispatch the Holy Spirit for the powerful application of Your Word to our lives on this day. Give us Yourself through this Word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're just joining us, you're showing up in the fourth of six parts on those two verses. Six sermons, two verses in a larger series in the book of Hebrews, but six parts on this paragraph, which really is the central theme, thesis, paragraph of the whole letter. If you want to know what the book of Hebrews is about, it is condensed down into verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. In the first part, in this little series, on these two verses, we looked at the key phrase, which is that first little phrase of verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Your translation may say, looking unto Jesus. We looked at Him as the epicenter of the Christian life. There is no Christianity apart from Christ Himself. In the second part, we looked at running the race and why and how we're to do so. Why we're surrounded by Every other Christian in every time and every place, they've also been Christ-centered believers. And we looked at how to do so, laying aside every weight and every sin so that we can run without impediment toward Jesus, our goal, our treasure. Last Sunday, we obeyed the verse. Trust that the Spirit allowed us to obey the verse. 
as we fixed our eyes on Jesus in a particular way. We riveted our focus. We put the laser beam of our attention on one aspect of His glory. That He is author and perfecter of faith. All true faith begins and ends with Jesus. And He is the object of it all. The means. Today we want to take that laser beam and look again at Christ, but not generically. Not generally. We want to look specifically at what He endured. The verse says in verse 2, He endured the cross, despising the shame. It tells us how He endured the cross. Not only what He endured, the cross. The cross is what He endured, but the way He did it was despising, casting off the shame that was involved in it. And then we're told also in the preceding parenthetical phrase why He did it, which I mentioned, Lord willing, we'll dive into next Sunday. For the joy that was set before Him. So if you're joining us or have already been with us, here's the summary sentence of this six-part series. Verses 1 and 2 in a one-sentence application, would sound something like this. We're called to gladly rid our life of anything and everything that hinders us from a Jesus-focused, gospel-purchased lifestyle. Focused on Christ, bought by His blood. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who endured the cross for the joy set before Him. Jesus-focused, gospel-purchased lifestyle. Anything that slows you down from that, we're called to gladly rid our lives of that. Well, today, as I mentioned, we're going to zero in on that phrase in verse 2. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Before you and I can see the cross as something that's done for us, the joy set before Him, That's what He did for us. He brings us into God's own everlasting joy. Before we can see the cross as something done for us, we've got to see the cross as something done by us. There's two ways we want to look unto Jesus today. We want to see what it means that He endured the cross. And we want to see what it means that He despised its shame. There's two aspects that we want to look at each of those phrases with. The earthly and the heavenly. First, Jesus endured the cross. There's a human and a divine element to what He endured at the cross. Meaning something that man did, something that we did to Him that He endured. But there's also, and most substantially, something that God did that He endured at the cross. Similarly, when He despised the shame, there is a human and a divine element to the shame He despised. He despised both earthly and heavenly shame. First, Jesus endured the cross. I want us to travel through the window of faith to look at what Jesus endured. What did He endure humanly? Or at the hands of men? 
that little statement in this verse, He endured the cross. What few words to carry such a loaded message. There's a play on words right here in these two verses. You might see the word endurance in your Bible in verse 1 and the word endured in your Bible in verse 2. You are, verse 1, to run with endurance. Same Greek word. Jesus endured the cross. It's the same word. There's no quitting in the Christian life. And the Christian life is not willpower. It's looking to our exemplar, the one who endured hell itself for us. What did Jesus endure? If we were to pass around the blank page again today and everyone were to write a response, what did Jesus endure at the hands of men at the cross? What would you supply? What did Jesus endure at Calvary? Before you get to Calvary, you need to understand something about Jesus. Not only that He's the God-man, He's the second person of the Trinity, He's the one who flung the cosmos into existence according to Colossians chapter 1. He's the one that sustains you right now whether you acknowledge Him or not. You're breathing His air, He causes your heart to beat. Not only do you need to understand His divinity, but during His earthly life, you need to understand that before He ever came to the cross, He was already enduring a load of suffering beyond what any of us have experienced. His suffering did not begin on the road to Calvary. We're told from Scripture that during his earthly life, he was rejected by his own countrymen in Nazareth. He was rejected by the religious establishment of the day. He was rejected by the fickle public opinion of his day. And eventually, he was rejected by his own disciples who forsook him and fled, one even denying him three times. To understand the suffering of the cross, you've got to understand that he is the man of sorrows. He came to take all of our suffering. And during the days of his earthly life and obedience, he carried all of our suffering with him in those days and then brought to the cross all of our shame, And then he suffered for it in an even more intensified way. To understand the suffering of the cross, you've got to know that Jesus' whole life was one of suffering. Satan, called in Matthew the prince of darkness, never left him. Satan is not omnipresent. He is not God's equal opposite. He's in one place at one time and he strategically chooses the one location where he thinks he can have the greatest effect against the kingdom of Christ. He chased Jesus his entire earthly life. We know that from Matthew 4. We know that from Matthew 16. And we can see it showing up in plenty of other places like the outrage of the demon possessed every time he got near. Not only was he chased by Satan for his entire life and that being a substantial part of his earthly sufferings, he was also homeless. He he owned nothing beyond the clothes that he wore. He didn't even have a pillow to lay his own head upon Matthew chapter 8. The crowds constantly, constantly demanded signs from him as if he were 
one of Egypt's magicians, John chapter 2. He was almost always, read the Gospel of Mark and pay careful attention to the word immediately. He was almost always exhausted and he never made one excuse for not obeying what the Father had given him to do on any one day of his life. Not only was he exhausted, he was exhausted so much so that on one occasion he was so dead to the world that though he was in a small fishing boat caught in the eye of a raging storm, he was sound asleep. That's not only because he's the potentate of the universe, it's because he was absolutely spent in his obedience to the Father. His suffering included being misunderstood by his family, wondering at times about his sanity, Luke chapter 8. The Pharisees stalked him, they strategized against him, they paid people money to try to concoct questions that would have trapped him. Mark chapter 12. One author said, Jesus' whole life followed a pattern of rejection. So to understand he endured the cross, you've got to understand he didn't start suffering on the last week or last day of his earthly life. He was a sleep-deprived man on the day that they marched him up to Golgotha. He was arrested the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane where he sweat drops of blood under the agony of what he knew he would endure for our redemption. That night after being jockeyed around following his arrest from one unjust trial to the next, they stuck him into a dungeon-like prison where he probably slept zero. The next morning when they thought that it was the right time to start to Toy with him again, so they thought. Matthew chapter 26 tells us how they greeted him. This is the day of his crucifixion early in the morning. They, I'm quoting Matthew 26, 67. They spat in his face. I'm not going to read the next phrase of that verse until you picture it. They spat in his face. Next phrase. They, plural, beat him with their fists. Grown men hitting him in the face. Others slapped him. Matthew 27, 26, they scourged him. We all know what that means, right? Cat of nine tails, broken glass, bones, shards of metal. On the end of every strap of the whip. Back stretched out, arms tied around something like a telephone pole, leather straps bent over, grown men. They scourged him. They twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Matthew 27, 29. They took the reed that they had put in his hand just prior to that so that they could mockingly bow down before him in homage as the king. They took that reed out of his hand in Matthew 27.30 and, quote, began to beat him on the head. That's ongoing. They hit him with a stick repeatedly in the head. Matthew 27, 32, they forced him to carry his own cross, that is, we know, as far as he could do it. At the crucifixion, Matthew 27, 35, they stripped him 
dividing up his garments and casting lots for them, Matthew 27. They drove nails through his wrists and his ankles. And then they left the only innocent man who's ever lived to die between two criminals as they played games for his clothes while he died. He endured the cross. That's only what he endured at the hands of men. That's the human element. What is the divine element? When Hebrews 12.2 says, fix your eyes on Jesus, dot, 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 He endured the cross. It's not only talking about what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us concerning grown men pulling the beard from His face, wrapping a purple cloth around Him, hitting, them with, hitting Him with balled up fists. It's not only the spitting, the beating with sticks. It's not only the scourging. It's not only the cross beam. It's not only pressing others into His service when he had no energy left to continue. When Hebrews 12.2 says he endured the cross, based on everything I find in Hebrews chapter 1 through chapter 11, the author mainly has in mind what he endured at the hands of God. Many aspects of the cross were awful for Jesus, and the Bible doesn't record the information so that we'll feel sorry for Him. Many aspects of the cross were awful. And many, many, many other men and women endured those aspects. Jesus is not the only person in the history of the world who's ever been crucified and treated like I just described. It is asinine that Jesus would be treated like I just described. But the worst by far that Jesus endured at the cross was the spiritual aspect. One author said, in its very nature, the spiritual content of the climax of Christ's sufferings on the cross are inaccessible to us. We cannot fathom what He endured. In what I think is the best contemporary book I've ever read, outside of Scripture, Donald McLeod's Christ Crucified. I don't know of another contemporary book that has provoked me to worship like this one. McLeod said, there is no parallel I'm thinking inaccessible to us. There is no parallel. Because Jesus stands where no one ever stood before or since. Knowing Himself to be the bearer of the sins of the world, destined to pay the price for our redemption, Mark 10.45, now here He is drinking the bitterest dregs of the cup which had so discomposed Him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He endured the cross. You know His words. They've been set to poetry. We've seen them painted on pictures that have flowers and sunlight and garden scenes. But when He hung on the cross, of the seven statements that He made, one of them is Matthew 15.34, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. 
That's the citation, as you know, from Psalm chapter 22, meaning, quote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of his entire earthly life and ministry, of all the things Jesus ever said and did, of all the countless times He taught about the Father, He showed the Father, He explained who the Father is, and when He related to the Father in prayer, of all those times, that verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is the only time in Jesus' entire earthly life and ministry that He did not refer to God as His Father. Something's happening. Something's happening in this moment where the Son of God no longer refers to God the Father as Father. Moments earlier, with a heart full of messianic love, as He hanged dying, He cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. But at the ninth hour, as the Gospels tell us, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., 3 p.m. being the ninth hour, as Jesus hung on the cross for those six hours on that Friday outside Jerusalem, at the ninth hour, the land is in total darkness. Three o'clock in the afternoon, pitch black. Jesus at that moment reached the lowest point in all of His humiliation. And in that moment, He reached the apex of all the agony that was possible for a human being to endure. The physical pain was no worse, I don't suppose, at 3 p.m. than it was at 2 p.m. Perhaps it was even less as His faculties began to wane. But his soul was in so much torment that his cry is simply, God, God, why have you forsaken me? It's a moment of unsustainable awfulness. Donald McLeod said, Abba is out of reach, he's not listening. The intimacy is broken between father and son. An intimacy that had never been broken before. Like Abraham and Isaac going up to Mount Moriah. Genesis 22.2 Father and son had gone up to Calvary together. McLeod says, Throughout his life, Jesus had been assured that he was never alone. John 8. The father was always with him. But now, at the ninth hour, Abba was not there. And Jesus can say only, Eloi, my God. God is certainly there. But not as Abba. There is now no sense of His own divine sonship. No sense of God's love. No sense of the Father's approval. God is not hearing Him. He cries, but there is no answer. God even seems to mock His trust. If you carry on reading Psalm 22, which Jesus quoted, Why have you forsaken me? Read verse 8. It seems like the Father... In His godness, goodness, and rightness for the redemption of our soul. Something's happening. Trouble is near, but there's no one to help. Psalm 22.11 
There are no comfortable scriptures to fill the mind of Christ. There's no assurance. There's no victory. There's no sense of it anyway. There's no vision of a redeemed multitude too great to count. At every other time of crisis, Abba had spoken very great words of encouragement to Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Not this time. The only thing Jesus heard at the ninth hour was the derision of the spectators, the curses of the soldiers, and the incessant whisper of the prince of darkness. Jesus is totally on his own. In that six hours, and perhaps at a particular moment in it, I don't know, This Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. You have to pause on that. The sinless one became sin. He who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5. He was so repulsive in the sight of God, Habakkuk 1, that God's holy eyes had to look away from Him. Whatever Galatians 3 means, Jesus was made a curse. What did He endure at the hands of man? Worse than we'd be able to describe. Worse than Hollywood can depict. What did He endure at the hands of God? Mama. But Hebrews 12.2 doesn't stop by telling us what He endured. The cross. But that little phrase, as he suspended on a tree, tacked to it like a piece of meat for crimes that he never committed, while he's enduring the anger of a just God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, he's despising the shame. He endured the cross, human and divine element. He despised the shame, human and divine aspects. The Bible's not only the the, the pages of the Bible, the apostles as they write Scripture, not only explain the cross, they tell us what's happening in the one who hangs there. Two avenues of shame that were involved at the cross for Jesus. First, the human shame. This is what He despised. This is the magnanimity of our Savior. This is the holy otherness of our God. He's above the trivial things that consume vile men. He's in a category all by Himself. He was altogether unconcerned about what anybody else 
thought about him, the derision of the mockers, the insults they hurled at him, the accusations they made about his relationship to the Father. If God is your Father, that's what they said to him. It affected him none that the gamblers were beneath his feet that the runners were taking the reeds with sponges and dipping them into sour wine and putting them in his face. He was doing something during all of that. And what he was doing was despising their shame. He hung naked in front of grown and children. And he despised that shame. He is the prototype of what a real man is and there's no more prototypical moment than when he's suspended on the cross. He did not listen to the shame of the cross itself. He demanded that the shame get behind him. He looked shame in the face and said, I despise you. You have no part in me. You have no sway over me. You will not control me. The centurion who is at the foot of the cross, Mark chapter 15. The soldiers that gambled for his clothes, Mark 15, 24. The derision of the crowd that passed by, Mark 15, 29. Jesus despised all that shame from all those people. Again, Donald McLeod. Christian devotion almost invariably refers to the place of the crucifixion as Calvary. That word, however, is not in the Bible. It appears in the 4th century in the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation. The word Calvary is well adapted to the purposes of poetry and hymnody. It sounds better. Certainly much more sanitary than how Luke refers to it. Luke 23:33. They took him to the place called the skull. McLeod goes on, it's easy to sanitize the cross. To rob it of its horror. To imagine that Calvary is a place of a serene, evocative spirituality. Jesus wasn't having his quiet time. George McLeod, perhaps some relation to Donald, I don't know, said Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves. On the town garbage heap. At the kind of place where, where is this spot in Memphis? Where do the most foul-mouthed people in Memphis hang out? Because Jesus was crucified where cynics talk smut. We know that happened. Where is this place in Memphis? Where is the place where thieves are on the loose and all they do is curse Where's the place in our city where soldiers go to gamble? That's where Jesus was crucified. Donald adds, McLeod, the act was barbaric. The sight with the detritus, the debris, the aftermath, the body parts of previous executions was still lying around. You know they didn't bury most of the bodies, right? It was horrific. We cannot, we dare not reduce the cross to a crucifix or Golgotha to a rose garden. Even that word, it's in the Bible. Golgotha. Such a guttural, deep, harsh, 
brash word. And Jesus looked at the shame of all that. And in his magnanimity as a man, the God-man, he looks at all the shame of all the world coming upon him in a moment. And Hebrews 12.2 says, he despised it. It had zero sway over him. He wasn't trying to look cool. He wasn't trying to be acceptable in his death. Martin Hingle wrote in his book, Crucifixion in the Ancient World, that crucifixion was not particular to the Roman, pe- peculiar to the Romans. It was also practiced in India, Assyria, Germany, and Britain. But he goes on to say, in all these cultures, the cross was seen as a deliberately degrading and obscene form of punishment in which the caprice and sadism of the executioners was given full reign. There were literally no limits. Once the condemned man was handed over, the soldiers could torture, humiliate, violate, as they pleased. But not all the blame for the barbarism should be laid on the executioners. Crucifixion, Hingle points out, satisfied the primitive lust for revenge and the sadistic cruelty of individual rulers and the masses. The human aspect of shame that Jesus despised was more of a tsunami of shame than all of us collectively would ever face. The Bible teaches that Jesus knew that the cross was His destiny for the entire duration of His earthly ministry. For three years, He said things like Luke 9.51, He set His face like a flint toward Jerusalem. Not only did He despise the shame, He attacked it. He went there on purpose. And that leads us to the Second aspect, the shame that Jesus despised just like the severity of punishment He endured was not mainly earthly, but heavenly. Jesus despised the shame. He despised the shame of being made a sin bearer for His people. He gladly associated with us without shame. Who are we to be ashamed of Him when He took all our shame and had no shame in associating with us? He despised the shame of being made sin, being made a curse, and enduring the everlasting wrath of the infinite Almighty God. If you read Isaiah 50 as if it is a portrait of the cross, just before Isaiah 53, that obvious chapter about the cross, then I think it should be taken that way. Even where there was no light, Jesus continued to walk by faith. Even when heaven turned its back, when the Father forsook Him, 
He did something in that moment. He took all the shame of all the rejection of the heavenly hosts, including God, and He despised that shame so that you would never, ever, ever have to be put to shame. Another author who I failed to cite said, even when Jesus cannot say Abba, He can say Eloi. He can say, my God. The God He loves and serves and still somehow trusts. Maybe this is what He dreaded as He trembled in Gethsemane. That His mind, maybe in this moment, when He's taking all the shame of all the holy ones in heaven, particularly the holy one. When he's taken all the shame of being made sin, maybe in Gethsemane he thought that his mind would break in an unbearable anxiety in that separation. When he realized that Abba was out of sight and out of hearing, that in the end, though hope may not burn, it continued to flicker even in that darkness. That was Donald McLeod. Look, I don't know what you're getting out of this sermon, but this is what I have prayed that we would get. Jesus was forsaken so that you would never have to be. He was put to shame by men and by God so that you would never have to be. He associated with you at your worst so that you could be identified with Him at His best. He endured the cross for you. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the meaning for which the world exists. So that the only true God, who you have terribly offended by your sin, could find mercy in His Son who bore your sin on your behalf. The application, I think, is abundantly obvious. If you're not in Christ, I have no idea why you would hesitate to believe the gospel. Jesus Christ endured the ignominy, the humiliation, the degradation, and the vitriolic disdain of God against sin so that you could have God's favor forever. Believe the gospel. If there were two ways or ten ways for you and I to be made right with God, don't you think that God would have thought of an alternative idea than having heaven's favorite pinned to a piece of wood outside of Jerusalem? Don't you think if there was any other way for your sin to be forgiven that God would have thought of that way? The gospel works like this. Imagine that on your way home today from your anticipated relatively normal Sunday, when you pull up at your house, you find that every emergency vehicle in the city of Memphis and the broader region is in your front lawn. You make your way to the door as quick as you can trying to figure out what in the world's going on, and you imagine that the chief of fire or police or whomever grabs you before you go in and says to you, I'm so sorry, but your entire family has perished inside. 
How? There was an intruder. We don't know all the details, but somebody came in and slaughtered them all. I want you to imagine being assured in every way that enforcement and authorities could do it. We will find this man. We will bring them to justice. We promise you whoever did this will be held accountable. You give them in no uncertain terms an ultimatum to find them as soon as possible to put everything else on hold until they have him. And let's just imagine that a day or two goes by. The chief calls again, sir, ma'am, we're doing everything we can. We promise you, this is priority number one. We will not sleep until this case is resolved. Then imagine two weeks, two months, two years goes by. You keep getting the same report. Imagine a decade, two decades go by. And then eventually, 20, 30, 40 years down the road, there's a knock at your door. There's a man standing there that you don't recognize. He's got a suitcase in either hand. As you answer the door, are you Miss So-and-so? Are you Mr. So-and-so? In fact, I am. Who are you? I'm the person who killed your family. I got all my belongings in these two bags. I'm wondering since... Your loved ones are no longer here. Can I move into your house? Can I sleep in your children's bed? Can I sit at their place at the table? Will you give me all the inheritance that you had previously intended to give to them? Is there a man on earth that would meet that moment with anything less than all-out rage? The gospel is is the otherworldly good news. That unless you get everything you've got in whatever you need to get it in and march your little self up to the throne room of God Almighty and beat on His door until He answers and when He opens it, you have to say to Him, I got all my stuff in this bag and I'm the one who killed your son. And I'm wondering, can I move into your house Can I sleep in your children's comfort? Can I sit at His place at the table? The table. Can I have all the inheritance that you intended to give to Him? God is the only person in the universe who says yes to that question. How can He say yes? Jesus endured the cross despising the shame. That's the answer to the greatest quandary in the universe. So the application is believe the gospel. And then, as we believe the gospel, keep believing the gospel. Keep believing the gospel. Keep believing that what Jesus did and what He endured and what He despised is our only hope. And in His risen victory, He gives us all His righteousness if we will but by faith trust Him. I believe this is what, not this verse, but this Gospel truth is what the Apostle Paul was thinking about in the thesis statement of the book of Romans. I think he was drinking down Golgotha. He was looking at the place called a skull. He was eyeing by faith the Lord of glory in all His regal majesty humbling Himself to become obedient to the point of death, even storge, the cross death. 
And as Paul thinks about that truth, he writes his thesis statement of the book of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. How could we be ashamed? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain? For me who Him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Father, we ask that for Your own glory, You would cause the truth of the Gospel to take deepest possible root in our souls. You take a moment of silent reflection. Just You and God. And ask the Holy Spirit to apply this Word to your soul. Him 311, man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. Please stand and sing. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what
Not a savior bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place condemned he stood sealed my pardon with his blood hallelujah what a Savior, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He, full atonement can it be, hallelujah, what a Savior! Lifted up was He to die, it is finished was His cry. Now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah! What a Savior! When He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing, Hallelujah! What a We're going to enter in now into a season of open prayer as the Lord has stirred your heart from the Word or some related truth that uh, the Spirit's reminded you of during the sermon. What we would like to do is take the next moments as the Lord leads, and if you're willing to pray home something related to this sermon, we'd ask that you just stand where you are, and several will be bringing microphones around, and we would actually hope that multiple people would stand simultaneously so that we can take advantage of our opportunity to pray together. So as the Lord leads, after I begin us, you just stand where you are and the brothers will come to you with a microphone to pray home these things. Father, I pray that in this moment of corporate prayer, that the same Holy Spirit who inspired Hebrews 12 Verse 2 will carry this prayer time right into the throne room of heaven on the basis of Christ's risen victory. And Lord, I also ask boldly that if any among us are not yet in Christ, that they would be willing to take this prayer time to call out to you for salvation. Be glorified as we seek your face together in Jesus' name. Father, um, 
Lord, I pray that you would uh, stir our hearts to worship and gratitude when we consider what your servant has laid before us this morning, that the Prince of Heaven endured the cross and despised the shame for his enemies. And Father, I pray that you would cause us to worship Jesus and him alone because he alone could accomplish this task. Only Christ could drink the cup of your wrath to the dregs. Only Christ was worthy as a sacrifice. Only Christ was willing to endure the cross on behalf of his enemies. And Father, we thank you that this was not only the only right sacrifice, but it was an acceptable sacrifice to you. Lord, where the blood of bull and goats could never satisfy sin, where our pathetic, filthy rags piled up in neat piles could never atone, where the sacrifices of priests who never sat down but continually made sacrifices for themselves and your people year after year so that the blood on the mercy seat flowed. Father, our Lord Jesus made one sacrifice for all and now he sits at your right hand making intercession for us even now. And so, Lord, I pray for this prayer meeting that you would cause your people to come boldly before the throne of grace and ask great things of you that you would cause us to be stirred to love and obedience that as we go throughout the week that the minds and mouths that worship you today might not dishonor you with our lives tomorrow. And Father, we pray most of all that the Lamb who was slain would receive all all the reward for his suffering. Father, we confess that he has not received all he is due in our lives, in our families, in our churches, and particularly not in this fallen world. So, Lord, we pray that you would move in hearts here in this city and around this small globe so that our prince might receive more honor and glory. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have delivered such a strong message to us this morning through your mouthpiece, Jordan Thomas. Father, we thank you for the continual love that you show us. But Father, we have those tendencies to think that you suffered and it was pretty and you endured the cross and it was pretty, but Father, it was, it was not pretty. So Father, we ask that our hearts see the depth of the fact that you did endure the cross and that you did despise the shame. But God, you've given us your son, Jesus Christ. Father, you've demonstrated your love towards us that while we were yet sinners, that your son died for us. 
Father, move our hearts in such a strong way. Only you can do that, Father, and help our hearts to sing many praises, many, many praises to the King. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Father in heaven, God, you are glorious and you are majestic. God, you're altogether lovely. You're holy. You're unlike us. You're transcendent above us in every way fathomable. And God, you, Lord Jesus, on the cross, you bore our wrath that we deserve. God, you endured that cross. You endured the wrath of God for us. You despised the shame of our sin. God, you bore that burden so that we don't have to carry it. You bore the wrath of God for us so that we don't have to suffer it. So God, as your word says... How can we continue in sin and put Christ Jesus once again to open shame? We can't do that. God, he has already borne our shame. He'll not do it again by our open rebellion and sin against you. So, God, forgive us for presuming upon your grace. God, we can't sin so that grace may abound. God, forgive us. Even though you've poured out your grace in our hearts, God, you've changed our hearts so that we do love you and we do want to obey you. God, we are still eat up with sin. And we need your mercy. We need your compassion. And God, we cry out for that now, not only for us, but for our neighbors, for our family members, God, for all those around us. God, we don't think highly of ourselves. Father, we know what wretches we are. I know myself how how sick my heart is, oh God. So Father, forgive us. And God, let us know in our our hearts and our minds when we're tempted to sin. We cannot put your son to open shame once again. God, you say that there's no forgiveness for that. So God, that's a a hard issue that that we must uh, we must face. We must repent of that. God, grant mercy, grant compassion, repentance, and faith to your people so we may continue to live upon your grace, O oh God, and live upon it and live by faith in you. And God, out of that faith, to love you, to obey you, 
God, to follow after you, knowing that we will fall. But God, not desiring to fall, not chasing after things that will make us fall. Christ, you are worthy to be praised and honored because we who are sinners, we have been have the inheritance of the kingdom. We counted righteous. We can sit at your banqueting table. We're considered children of the most high God. That's we who are sinners. You joyfully welcome us in because of the blood that was shed for us. And we thank you. You're worthy to be praised, King Jesus. In that vein, I pray for Trey Campbell, who sits right now and scoffs at you and beats his chest and says, I am my God. Father, would you have mercy upon him? Would you show yourself to him? Holy Spirit, would you open his eyes and awaken him soul to, to know that he is a sinner and the wrath of God is about to fully pull upon his head unless, unless he repents and turns and looks at Jesus as the only hope for salvation and joy. Would you have mercy on his poor soul? Would you do it, Father? Praise in Jesus' name. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Father, we pray that you would forgive us of our sins. Forgive us against sinning against you and each other. We don't love you as we ought. And... We don't worship you as we ought. Help us, Lord, to love you more. We can't do anything apart from you. Pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we would worship you for your glory. Thank you for your mercy on us and saving us from your wrath. We pray that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you, that you would work in us for your glory, that you would, you would work in us to love you and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Lord. We don't want to hear that you've forsaken us. We don't want to hear that you depart from me. I never knew you, workers of iniquity. That's a scary thought, Lord. It's a horrible thought. I pray that you would give us peace and that you would root us in love and faith, that we would be grounded in your word. Please help us to love you more. We need, we need your grace. We're asking these things knowing that you hear us and that you'll, you're able to do these things. So we pray that you would do this for your glory, for Grace Church. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we do praise you that Jesus would identify with our shame, would associate with us in our shame, 
Lord, with him being the holy and righteous one, Lord, that he would uh, take, associate with us in our sin and in our rebellion and would take that upon himself and and take the punishment for that. And Father, I pray that we would not be ashamed of him in any way at all, but God, that you would cause us to truly live lives that are worthy of the calling to which we have been called, as your word says, and that through both word and deed, Lord, that Jesus would be exalted through our lives in the way that he's worthy of, Lord. God, forgive us for ever having any, having any, being ashamed of him at all in any way. Lord, he is worthy of every ounce of our being. And Father, I pray that you would cause him to, Lord, help us to see him in such a way that we truly would exalt him in a way that he's worthy of. Looking unto Jesus, Father, I praise you that today, through the preached word, Lord, you've given us a greater vision of Christ. God, I pray you would put a hunger in our hearts to be a people who gaze upon Christ there on the cross and in all of his suffering. And, Lord, that we would uh, remember, Lord, that many of us here, Lord, you've uh, found us when we was dead in our sins and our trespasses and when we were enemies and who we were held prisoners uh, by our, our, the devil of this world, Lord. And you... You, you regenerated us. You made us alive and you give us faith to cling to Jesus. Lord, to look to this Jesus, to see this Jesus, to rest in the work of this Jesus. So, Lord, I pray for the people of Grace Church that are in Christ. Lord, that this week and from now on we'd go around shouting in our hearts, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of the living God. Lord, I praise you for the work you've you, you've done, I praise you for showing us today again and afresh the work of the cross, that epicenter of human history there in a, on a place called the skull. Uh, uh, Lord, uh, in Jesus, you despised it. You counted as nothing. Lord, you, you was ready for, for all of that. You was faced that day from man and from God for our sakes, for your great infinite love for us. How we praise you, Lord, that we've seen a picture of that today. Lord, fill our hearts with joy, with gladness, with obedience. And Lord, for those who are not yet in Christ, Lord, those here today, they were born and dead in their sins and trespasses too, and they were are your enemies yet and without hope, without God, and still being held prisoners. Now, Holy Spirit, would you blow across the hearts of these people, Lord, that are here today, young and old alike, that they too would see that they must be born again. And God, that you would give them faith to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do that, God, for your glory today. For when you had by yourself purged our sins, you ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. And there you sit right now, O King Jesus, mighty God, mighty to save. And we praise you that we saw you today as our scapegoat as our sacrifice, as our suffering servant, and most of all, our substitute and surety. Glory be to your holy name today.
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Praise be to God. Lord, we can only marvel and worship with the knowledge that you, perfect and holy and just, too holy to even look upon sin, and we, in an Isaiah 6 sort of way, too sinful to behold your glory. See that you, perfect, took on yourself, absorbed within yourself the wrath for sin, our sin, so that we can cast aside every sin and weight which clings so closely. That we don't have to be bound to that because you took it upon yourself. And we do that by looking to you. But it's because of you that we can. And we marvel in a way knowing that you turned your back, forsaking the sin on your son so that you could look upon us and hear us when we cry out to you. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Father in heaven, thank you that Christ is an infinite fountain deep enough and wide enough for all of us sinners to plunge ourselves into the bottomless ocean of him. Thank you that you did not withhold one ounce of your wrath from your son so that you would not withhold one ounce of your love from us who are in Christ by faith. We praise you, O God. Again and again, they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day he redeemed them from the oppressor. Father, we pray that you would help Grace Church remember your power, for we have been redeemed from the oppressor.
For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Transferred from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved son. This transaction that takes place, that has taken place, is just start afresh from the preach word this morning. That your son Jesus Christ would for the first and only time not refer to you as father. And that he would feel that moment of abandon, the perfect unity that is tasted and felt among the fellowship of the unit of the Trinity is beyond our imagination. And yet that fellowship for a moment in time because of our sin was the burden of that was put on Christ's back and now we sit as one whose lives have been invaded by Christ, sinful and rebellious as we are, washed clean of our sin and having the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Now we enjoy the fellowship of the Trinity. What a, what a transfer that we're not worthy of. It's overwhelming, Father, our our emotions should be stirred. And Father, the reality is it has actually happened. It's, it's real. We've really been invited into this fellowship, this kingdom. We've been united with the triune God. We just praise you, God. We give you glory. We give you thanks for the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. We praise you. Lord, you've heard our voiced and silent responses to your word. We pray now that in this beautiful picture and portrait that you've handed to us called the Lord's Supper, where we see through symbols, reminders of that great gospel work of Jesus, that won our redemption and the promise that you'll carry us safely home. God, we pray that you would edify our souls, that you would remind us that if God is for us, it doesn't matter who's against us. And Lord, I pray that you would be greatly glorified as we believe on your son who died for our sins and rose again for our justification. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a meditation for the supper, let me begin with just some simple instructions. They're actually printed on that little half-page sheet that we hand out each week. That is, if you're a baptized Christian, if you're turning from all known sin, translation, there's no sin that you're holding on to, that you're unwilling to let go of at the foot of the cross, Christ. Baptized Christian, forsaking all known sin, and you're an active member of a gospel preaching church. The gospel you heard preached today would be the gospel you heard preached where you're an active member. Then we certainly invite you to participate with us. Now for the meditation, uh, we would hope that everybody participates in this moment. Those at the table that I just described, and those remaining seated for whatever reasons between you and the Lord, but engaging with the Lord. I want you to think about two categories that are presented throughout the whole chapter of Romans 8. I'll just give you the first two verses. The, true category, the two categories are flesh, sinful, and Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law, weak as it was through the flesh, uh, because God condemned in the flesh of Christ our sin. Let me get the quote. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law, weak as it was through the flesh. Let me read it. It's too good to get wrong. Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The great promise of Romans 8, 1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is because God did condemn sin in the flesh. It just wasn't our flesh. It was in his son. He endured the cross, despising the shame. And the promise is where he is now seated, as we see in this text, Romans 12, 2. It's exactly where he promises those to be seated forever whose hope is in him. So let the meal remind us the cup, the blood of Christ shed for you, the bread, the body of Christ broken for you. Let it remind you what he has done and also what he will do. So if you're a baptized Christian turning from sin and an active member of a gospel preaching church, we're going to cluster up in groups in a moment. People come receive the elements. You just find a group of five or six people. One person in every group will ask to offer a brief prayer of thanks for the gospel. Then take together the bread, then the cup. Father, thank you for this meal, this reminder of the blood, the body of our Savior of the price that was paid for our redemption, but also the promise that's bound up in the glorified body of Jesus. That the one who endured the cross despising the shame also did that for the joy that was set before him and that joy has been consummated. He is seated at your right hand. And you promise that all who are in him will be with him forever because of who he is 
and because of what He's done. So let us eat and drink with that celebratory confidence that you have condemned sin in the flesh, but it wasn't our flesh. And therefore, those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. We give you all the glory for this precious gospel truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You meet with the Lord, respond as He leads.
And what we hope and trust and pray that your heart has been encouraged in the Lord, that the Spirit of God has been gracious to you. As we transition from this service, there's several announcements I want to make, beginning with how the Lord may be dealing with some of you. Occasionally, following our services, we're going to offer what we're calling an inquirer's room. You're inquiring about your soul's condition. You have questions about where you stand with the Lord, um, questions about your salvation, questions about the gospel, that kind of thing. Then today, following the service in the conference room, which is the last room just before you exit the building on this side, I'll be there for a few minutes. If anybody would like to come and talk, pray, you can certainly just silently read your Bible and pray. You don't have to talk, but I'll be there and available if you would like to talk about those things. Several announcements that are really relevant for today, so tune in. Number one is we gave last Sunday to the church members uh, a smartphone app that has the whole directory, everybody's name, address, email, phone number. You can just scroll it on your phone. All the information has been updated. So if we had incorrect stuff on you, it's all updated now. And if you'll just look at your information, if anything about it is inaccurate, send that to John Lancaster, and he'll, he'll be able to update that. That's a very helpful feature, so we hope that you'll make good use of it. Second, we distributed today just a few copies of the Two Grace with Love. The elders write monthly love letters to the members of the church. These are available to anybody, but we email them out to the whole church, print a few copies. There's 20 or 30 copies on the resource table. This month's installment deals kind of, sort of, with the SCOTUS decision uh, last week, the Supreme Court decision last week, and how we're to live in light of that. Third, I just want to brag again on the grace of God for this Amber Adoption Fund receipt. By the grace of God, we more than doubled our goal. Praise the Lord for that, $11,000. And as Pastor Nathan said, in addition to what was already in that account because of your generosity in times past, we hope and pray that families will even more earnestly pray about the pursuit of adoption, the 144 million orphans worldwide who could use a loving, godly home. We would love to be a help to you in that. Next, the TCT... Treasuring Christ Together Ecclesiology course. There is a little information about that in the handout for today. We're hoping for 50 lay folks, just like you, in churches from around Memphis to come together for this fall seminar. Let me tell you what you'd be committing to if you were interested. A Thursday and Friday, and then another Thursday and Friday. That's it. Between those times, on your own, you have some resources to read and to interact with and opportunities to meet with pastors and talk about the doctrine of the church. What is Christ doing? Why does the church matter? And we're hoping just to, over time, infect Memphis uh, by the grace of God with healthy, good, Christ-honoring truth. Well, Christology was this spring. Ecclesiology is this fall. If you're interested, there's applications for that also at the resource table. And during our fellowship and ministry time, you can hang out there and pick up all the things that I'm mentioning. The next thing I want to mention is we did send a new installment, we meaning the elders, and send to the church members a new installment of what we call Tend My Lambs. 
four questions so we can know how you're doing spiritually, physically, otherwise, ways we can pray for you. And it's a preemptive strike. We don't want stuff to get really bad and nobody knew it. Uh, So this is a way four times a year your elders send this out. It helps us so much to pray for you. So please respond to that. You don't have to labor over it. If you're doing well, we'll give God glory. You can say we're doing well. But we just want to know how to pray for you. So please respond to that. If you don't, uh, in a couple weeks, you'll be hearing from the elder for this quarter again with a friendly reminder. So you strike first. Next, uh, during the fellowship and ministry time, I'm about to dismiss you all. We'll have until 4 p.m. just to linger in the building. We want to stay in this space the space right behind me, and this long hallway going down to the children's area. You can strike up good conversations. You can cluster up for prayer, whatever. During that time, we're going to ask that the the, uh, setup guys for today just knock that out on the front end. As much of as you can, just get that done so that when we're concluding, we uh, we can just say, see you later. We do need to be out of the building and the parking lot at 4 p.m., but we'll say that again right before the end of that fellowship time. All right, last but not least, I have a slide that I want to show you because it's a, it's a prayer request that we want the whole church to be praying about. So with no further ado, boom. All right, got it? No. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> six or eight months ago, we knew that a piece of property in downtown Memphis was going to potentially become available. I'll explain exactly where this is in a minute. Some of you can figure that out already. The property had an option on it for a builder, a developer, to put multi-housing, apartment complex kind of thing on it. It's a pretty big parcel of land to hold a big building like that. Had he not started the development, he's from Iowa or Ohio, one of those vowel states. Um, Had he not started the development by June the 30th, which was this week, it went into default and became available again. We've had that note in our calendar forever. We've known that for a long time and just been hoping and praying nobody would start building on it. Long story short, we called this week the people who are responsible for negotiating how this land might be used. The person I spoke with said, well, actually I'm about to walk into a meeting with such and such company in 15 minutes to discuss that property said, oh, well, will you tell them we're interested? And by the way, I know the man that you're going to talk with, and I'm supposed to meet with him this Saturday. Just in the Lord's providence, those things were together. They discussed during the meeting. Whatever they discussed, we don't know. The only reason we're saying this to you now is the two biggest sticks that can be swung in real estate development in downtown Memphis want to meet with us Thursday or Friday of this week at that property just to talk and see what we might be interested in. We're saying that to you now because we just want you praying about it. We have no idea if the Lord wants us to move on this, how it would be provided for. All those things are very big questions. We don't know. But we do want to say to you on the front end, pray with us. Full disclosure. It's it's definitely an area of interest. Let me just tell you where it is if it's not abundantly obvious. The shaded area, all right, Looney Avenue goes right through the middle of it. And... Right on Looney to the right of this, you'll see four little slightly uh, gray boxes. Brett Rogers lives in that one, or the other one. All right, that one. And then down in the green area, Brian and Angie Smith live right there. So this is between Front and Main, and between Safferins and Kill. 
We're most interested, if we can only get a, a chunk, if the Lord would have it, we're most interested in the area below Looney. All right, so that bottom quadrant or half. It's all been raised, torn down, cleared out, and graded. It's totally prepared for construction. It, again, it was supposed to be started by June 30th. It, it's ready to build on. All right, that's what it looks like now. Um, there's a lot of advantages to that property from our vantage point uh, so far as we understand things now. We would like you all to drive by it. Go look at it. See what you think about it. And keep praying, and we'll keep you updated. Again, nothing may come of Thursday or Friday's meeting, but perhaps the Lord's up to something. Any questions about that before I dismiss you? No idea. Okay. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. For the next 40 minutes, you're free to encourage and minister to one another. We'll give an announcement about 10 minutes before the end of that that you need to get out of here. Otherwise, the Lord bless you. Yeah, go get your kids from nursery. And don't let your kids run crazy.